0: This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Quite a uh, an, an about face, a U-turn. I, I'm thinking most of Ontario is feeling a slight ting of uh, a sting of, of whiplash today after that. Uh, Doug Ford, a a video release from the Liberals uh, of him, I guess, back in February, talking to some developers, saying that he was going to open up a big chunk of the Green Belt. All of a sudden, uh, the Green Belt hit the fan. And uh, he, by the end of the day yesterday, reversed his stance and said, no, we're not going to touch the green belt. To talk more about all of this, Peter Grafe is with us, professor of political science at McMaster University. He is with us now. Peter, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. My pleasure. So does this help or hurt the Doug Ford campaign?
1: Well, uh, it's hard to see it helping uh, when all is said and done. Uh, I mean, clearly the decision to uh, not uh, uh, not move on the green belt ultimately, to say that in the end he's not going to touch the green belt, will probably help his campaign because when the news uh, came out that he was willing to open up a large chunk of it, it was clear that even within the Conservative Party and in its voting base, there was a pretty uh, strong opposition to that move. And uh, I, I presume that's why uh, he, he came out with that that position, although... You know, again, it's not helpful for him because it's not as if he really made a U-turn on this. It was not clear that he was ever going to openly announce what his plan was about uh, the Green Belt. Um, You know, it came out because it was released, these secret conversations, and I think that's probably where the Liberals are going to try to go with this, is to begin to ask the question, are there other promises that have been made that aren't being made publicly, but nevertheless would be put into place? So if they want to run a kind of campaign of what's what's he hiding, uh, I don't think they could do better than this kind of tape
0: uh how important was it for him to retract this uh pretty quickly and say no it's not going to happen i've listened to you i'm not going to do it
1: well to me it must uh, it must be an indication of a, a large degree of internal unhappiness with it within the conservative party and with uh you know members of provincial uh, parliament saying well our constituents and including a lot of our hardcore supporters are coming and saying we don't like this move and it may cost us uh, votes uh, in many of the suburbs where people are happy to be the, the last row of the suburb and don't want to see a new one built in the green space beyond. Uh, so, I mean, I think that must be, you know. I guess that
0: be, affects the value of homes too, wouldn't it? Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, everyone likes yeah. to be the last uh, the last house <laughs> in the suburbs, right? Because yeah, then yeah. you're, you're on the edge of the, the, the fields. So mm-hmm. And course more suburbs also mean more cars on the road and uh, takes longer to get to work into the city so uh, you know it wasn't an obvious uh, pleaser uh, for his base and I I think that's probably why he moved off it so quickly because in other situations if we look at the playbook that his brother used or you know other sort of more populist leaders often when things are unpopular they simply come out with the next policy and count on people to have forgotten about it you know in a few days but clearly they felt that this is something that uh, the liberals could really make stick on the government. I mean, not just the policy, but also the fact that he was there talking about it with developers in private, and yet there had been no public discussion of of his position on it yet. Mm-hmm. So, again, if you, if you want to paint someone as, you know, he says he's a person of the people, but he's got secret deals uh, with, with the elites in the back room, uh, you know, you couldn't ask for better than that.
0: Uh, we certainly remember what happened the last two elections. Uh, was this a John Tory or Tim Hudak train wreck waiting to happen?
1: Well, I mean, uh, last I checked, uh, the, the Conservatives are still leading in the polls. Uh, you know, I didn't see as a result of this a whole bunch of people saying, well, maybe I will vote for Kathleen Wynne after all.
0: Uh, <laughs> so, Good point.
1: So, I mean, again, I think it exposes a vulnerability that potentially the other parties can exploit or, you know, other... Uh, Other groups who have questions about particular conservative policies, say on the environment, might try to exploit it uh, because it has now introduced the idea in the minds of Ontarians that maybe Doug Ford has a bunch of ideas that are a bit problematic or that aren't based on what's best for Ontarians but what's best for a sort of a small group of them. And so, again, that uh, that can be exploited by opposition parties, but the Conservatives probably can also find ways of limiting the damage.
0: Uh, we've heard that uh, that there's, um, um, I, I think the phrase that was put to me, and these are, you know, just rumors from news people talking back and forth, that there is a box full of uh, brown manila envelopes that one will be dropping every week or so prior to the election with these kinds of bombs in them. And and I'm sure that there's lots of available information, like the video we just saw uh, you know, to back these up, uh, will do you expect these sorts of things to keep rolling out right the way through uh, to the election campaign? And and how does how does the PC stop from doing what Tim Hudak and John Tory did?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think we will see a bunch of these come out. I mean, as we saw in an American election, what two years ago, it's possible to survive a series of brown paper envelopes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, a lot of it has to do with, uh, and you know, and the the strategy was just to keep pushing forward, and with the idea that people will lose their sense of outrage after a certain point, or they say, well, that's fine. This is a really damaged person, but we don't trust the uh, the opponent anymore. Uh, so I think a lot of it will be based on the capacity of the opposition parties if they're. You know, if they let the the news be led every day by a new scandal, I don't think it actually has a huge impact on uh, the sitting government. When they have the Times, or not the sitting government, the the leading party in the polls, the Conservatives, Uh, if they find a way to take a certain number of particularly salient issues, right, uh, you know, such as a green belt where there's strong support for it and explain why this is a problem and how it shows that Doug Ford claims to be one thing but in fact he's another, uh, you know, then I think they can they can potentially do uh, some damage to the the capacity of the conservative campaign to convince people uh, that now is the time to vote for Doug Ford. So a lot of it will be on the strategy of the opposition parties if they can cut through this the constant bombardment of. I mean, we've already seen a whole series of unfortunate or problematic things that Doug Ford has said at various times, and Mm. I think a lot of people just shrug it off because they already know that about him. Uh, I think this was damaging because it, it kind of spoke to something that they didn't know about him. They didn't know that he was planning to, you know, roll back part of the green belt. They didn't know that he, you know, was happy to meet with developers and make these kinds of promises that he knew would ingratiate himself with them. And so I think that's what's important in this one for maybe moving some people's opinions.
0: Uh, Wynn combating today saying she will extend the Green Belt if elected, re elected. Uh, is this going to resonate with Ontarians?
1: Uh, well, I think it kind of smacks of a certain desperation. Uh, I mean, we've been talking about the Green Belt for the past couple of years. The government's just done a consultation, and we saw that in Hamilton about whether certain areas should be subtracted or added into the Green Belt.
0: And hasn't the Wynn government been nibbling away at this anyway? Yeah. So, I mean, it strikes me as, uh,
1: again, a a campaign that's having a tough time getting traction. And so since uh, the news yesterday was green belt, let's have more of it, Um, you know, an an attempt to try and gain uh, some of the media attention and pull it away from uh, the Ford campaign. But, you know, I don't I don't know if Ontarians were saying they wanted more green belts. I think there's a sort of satisfaction for how successful it's been to date. Um, you know, some people will want more green space or less green space, but I, I don't know if that's really on people's radar as an election issue. Certainly getting rid of the green belt is a, is a sort of significant departure and that had people up in arms.
0: Will the flip-flop, will Ford's flip-flop on the green belt uh, resonate? Will, will, it, will we be talking about this later on or will there be something else by then? Uh, or is this over because he said, no, nope, never mind, nothing to see here, not going to do it. <laughs>
1: Uh, well, I mean, I think the impact. I mean, is it a flip flop if he never really had a position publicly in the first place? Yeah, good point. You know, and so I think that's where the the potential damage for the conservatives is, is if and I could particularly see the liberals trying to cash in on this to make the argument that ultimately he's made all kinds of secret promises, and we know about this greenbelt one because it got caught on tape. But what are all the other ones? What's his hidden agenda? Uh, So it could be that it's a start of that kind of campaign for the Liberals. Uh, But then, you know, the question would be, you know, where do they go from there? I mean, they they tried to make the hidden agenda resonate by saying, well, look, all these things that Tanya Granik-Allen said, and he's running with her, or Andrew Lawton in London, you know, some pretty uh, colourful expressions on his radio show, and, uh, you know, and he chose them personally, you know, what's his secret agenda? But this this green belt has kind of pushed that uh, line forward, and so uh, I guess the question will be whether the Liberals can keep that going by having other examples or other ways of packaging that uh, you know, that question about Doug Ford that they want to put in people's minds.
0: Uh, NDP, Andrea Horvath, announcing her platform uh, a few days ago. Is it resonating? Are people listening? Are people looking?
1: I mean, I think Andrea Horvath, uh, you know, in her launch was really to make the case that uh, Kathleen Wynne is done, that uh, she can say things, but people don't believe her anymore. People aren't willing to give her uh, the benefit of the doubt. Uh, and so that if you don't want Doug Ford, you have to choose Andrea Horvath. I mean, that's really going to be the theme of that campaign. I mean, I think it has some resonance. Uh, one sees, you know, again, around this green belt uh, question when people said, oh, I'm a lifelong conservative, I can't vote for them this time, I guess I'll have to vote NDP. You can see that there's a, an anti-win uh, sentiment in the electorate that, you know, provided uh, Kathleen Wynne doesn't find a way to get some wind in her sails, you could see Andrea Horvath uh, becoming, if you like, the the other non-win choice. And so uh, is that resonating? Not... I don't know if it's resonating, but I think the position is there and there's a there's a credibility that if the campaign dynamics work in the right way, Horvath could have a bit of a breakthrough.
0: Uh, how do we explain the fact that they're still below the Liberals in the polls? Like, I mean, you know, if, if, if they're a valuable or uh, viable, story alternative, why aren't they at least outpacing the Liberals?
1: Yeah, I mean, the polls have been all over the place. I mean, generally uh, below the Liberals and a few polls a bit above them, but the swing in some cases, you know, in some cases they're lightly above the Liberals, in other cases they're well below, I mean, leads me to believe that there's a big uh, number of voters who are trying to figure out who to vote for, who will be the
0: the non-conservative, if you will. What's the difference between the two parties?
1: Well, that's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, they do come from different places. The Liberals have always been more of a party of the center.
0: Correct, but where are they now?
1: I think they're probably still in the center, but when it comes time to run in campaigns and elections, they realize that their strategy is to bulldoze the NDP in the first few days of the campaign by saying, "No, we'll do everything the NDP would do anyways. So vote for us because we're the effective uh, party in a, you know, in, a, in an electoral system that really is built to have two parties. Uh, and so I think that's really how how they've uh, situated themselves. Uh, yeah, I mean, the NDP, I think, in the current moment, distinguishes themselves in saying, well, we're actually not going to be as, uh, if you like, far left as the Liberals on a number of questions. Uh, but we may speak to a number of pocketbook issues that seem to be less on the uh, on the Liberal radar around things like, say, auto insurance or uh, hydro rates.
0: Do you think that um, there's been a- enough chatter about from Andrea Horvath about what the difference of these parties are, because, again, Kathleen Wynne just keeps taking the Liberals farther left, farther left, seem to be cutting, we've talked about this many times, cutting the NDP off at the pass. How does does Andrea Horvath sell this? We're more left than Kathleen Wynne. We'll give you more than Kathleen Wynne gave you. Uh, Shouldn't she be spending more emphasis on the fiscal side of this to convince people that she's more responsible than kathleen Wynn.
1: yeah in some ways you could i mean that's i mean part of the disappointment uh of uh, a number of uh, progressive actors in ontario is yeah that uh, Kath, uh, andrea horvath isn't willing to play the you know who's who's going to spend the most sweepstakes with uh, kathleen Wynne, and uh, you know it comes up with uh, programs that are maybe in some ways less uh, expensive and less grandiose like on childcare, saying that past a certain income Parents should begin contributing to the cost of a public child care system, uh, unlike Kathleen Wynne saying it would be free for everyone. So, I mean, that, you know, has uh, some people criticizing. I think Andrea Horvath's strategy is to say, uh, well, I'm, I'm the authentic choice. Kathleen Wynne can make all sorts of promises around right. these things, but she has a, a track record. Um, I think also, you know, again, playing on not just on policy, but saying, you know, who can you trust? No. I mean, any politician saying, trust me, more than the next one, I, I have kind of limited. Uh, <laughs> uh, but obviously that plays. I mean, people do uh, make a lot of choices not on policy, but on a sense of the sort of fundamental trustworthiness and the extent to which their idea of what that leader's values are and priorities are aligned with their own, In you know not in a very specific, detailed policy sense. And I think, again, that's where Andrea Horvath is setting up in this campaign. It's it's not about being lefter than Kathleen Wynne. It's about being more authentic uh, or uh, somehow, you know, a fresh choice rather than a tired old government.
0: Are Ontarios, are Ontarians asking how the NDP will pay for it if Kathleen Brown or if Kathleen Wynne is having a hard time paying for it?
1: Yeah, I think there are some questions around that. I mean, the NDP, I think, did put out their platform early with costing around it. Uh, you know, the costing of any political party is always a bit uh, optimistic uh but you know it's been out there now for what about a month uh, and there hasn't been sort of a huge chorus of people asking questions about whether this is realistic or that is realistic so uh i mean i think in a way ontarians might want that kind of politics but none of their parties are are offering it because we have the conservatives who to date have said they don't really think they'll get to a costed platform before the election um, we have the you know the liberals uh who you know decided at the last minute to run a big deficit rather than balancing the budget Uh, Doug Ford seems to feel that a big tax cut is more important than balancing the budget. So there's not really a a, a party of, I don't know, fiscal conservatism or, you know, fiscal rectitude where we have to balance the budget every year to kind of set that up as a a poll in this election. So, I mean, I think people probably ask questions about the NDP because there's some, you know, memories of when they were in uh, government from 90 to 95. Uh, But that, too, is now, you know, that's a quarter of a century ago and people... Uh, you know, I've seen other governments run deficits, uh, and so they may be, uh, you know, less likely to see that as a definite reason not to vote for the NDP.
0: Uh, is the Ford camp expecting more uh, of these little bombs all the way right up until the election?
1: I'm sure they must be, and I'm sure they must have strategies for how they're going to uh, uh, to deal with them. I, I mean, I think again, if they follow the the playbook of Rob Ford when he was mayor of Toronto, it was just to keep walking. Uh, and to assume that people are, you know, they may rip their shirts, but they're actually not surprised. Uh, they're not outraged. Um, they may think that, yeah, this guy's a pretty terrible person, but they don't necessarily think that the other people are angels. And so, or or in fact, that the people who are, think this is such a damning thing about Doug Ford that he said this or that, in some ways it makes Doug Ford more like them because they sometimes say things like that. Or think think, or see that, and it's like they may say it's bad, or we don't like it when people talk like that, but they don't think that that's actually the weight of the man's soul being determined on that one particular utterance, and in a way, it turns them against the people who bring that up and they say well are these are these a bunch of people who you know just want everyone to think like them so it can play for a populist to have these things come up if if they just keep moving forward. Uh, and if the people who are criticizing them uh, don't understand why it is that they're supported by their base mm. uh, and use then you know they have to speak it's not just that uh, these things are said or that there's these uh, pieces of evidence they have to be explained about why it matters to to you and that you has to be the person who's supporting doug ford in many cases and i think we saw this with hillary clinton it was more like here's another reason to laugh at donald trump rather than mm. oh, you're supporting donald trump and do you really want to support this is that yeah. who you are mm. And uh, Without that kind of campaign uh, capacity, uh, these so-called scandals aren't necessarily that devastating.
0: Peter Graf has been with us, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. Peter, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome.
2: You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.
0: According to a piece in the National Post, the first three months of 2018, 5,500 asylum seekers were intercepted by the uh, RCMP after crossing the border uh, uh, legally, uh, claiming uh, instead of, of course, going through uh, conventional channels. To talk more about all of this, Ar- uh, Aris uh, Dag- Daghigian is with us. Aris Dagigian is with us, refugee lawyer, Green and Spiegel LLP, immigration law. In Toronto, uh, Aris, thank you so much for taking the time. Sorry to butcher your name that way. Thank you, we much appreciated for, uh, your time here.
2: No problem, Scott. It's a tough
0: one. So, as we uh, move into the summer months, are you expecting a natural upswing in the amount of people that are uh, that are going to uh, try to cross the border illegally?
2: Well, there the, there has been a rise um, since the Trump administration back in 2016, um, so 2017. So it's likely going to continue. I don't know if the summer months will contribute to um, a greater amount of crossers than we've seen um, in the last few months, but the the, the trend is expected to continue, yes. Uh,
0: Government of Canada sent officials down to various states trying to discourage this uh, last year. Did that have any sort of effect? Will we see the same thing this year?
2: It's hard to tell whether it had an effect or how... Um, much their what, you know, the, the amount of reach that their efforts um, really had in the U.S. There's a lot of noise in the U.S., and so it's hard to get a message across, even if you are sending ambassadors from Canada to make the point that some individuals may be better served by remaining in the U.S. to make their asylum claims there.
0: Uh, Donald Trump wants uh, Mexican government to do something in order to stop the influx of immigrants coming into uh, the United States from Mexico. We've certainly heard about the caravan and so on and so forth over the last several weeks and such. Is he aware of what's happening, or does he care about what's happening with the northern border?
2: I'm not sure what he's aware of. Um, I know the Canadian government has brought this up um, a number of times with the U.S. authorities. Um E, you know, it, it does seem like it's a bit of a double standard, um, with respect to how much he cares about um a wall across the Mexican border, but then um th- there's there's no uh reciprocal um policy that they're considering for for Canada's border which affects us more than it affects them. That said, um I I don't believe the 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 uptick in claimants is as larger cause for concern as perhaps the uh, the National Post article you referenced makes it out to be. Um, an allocation of resources from the government would probably be sufficient to deal with it without causing too much um, headache to, to the administration of the system. Uh,
0: so, so what are we looking at? Two to four thousand refugees coming in or asylum seekers, I guess, per month per, through the summer?
2: I mean, the the numbers can vary, Um, and and we've historically always had claimants, either they come um, from the airport or they come from land borders or they come from irregular border crossings. So we've historically always had hundreds and thousands of claimants or refugee claimants in Canada, tens of thousands of refugee claimants total per year. Um, This is more than before, but it's not something that can't be dealt with if there are resources allocated to it. There is a system by which, you know, their claims are adjudicated if they're found um, to be fraudulent, then they're asked to be deported, to be removed from Canada, um, and they are deported if they don't comply. Um, and then there's some whose claims are actually meritorious, who, who do fisc- face a risk to their life, and I think the National Post article um, agrees with that as well, that there are some who do f- face a risk to their life in their home country, and so we protect those.
0: Eris, is this just the new norm? How long will this last? Because it's certainly been a few years now.
2: Um, I, I think it's the norm right now, given the climate of anxiety in the United States. So would a, um, change
0: in, a change in politics in the States ease this off, do you think, over time?
2: Right. I think we'd see a regression to the norm if there was a change in the administration in the U.S. or if you know a deal was reached on immigration reform in the U.S., which has been talked about by both parties over there. Um, if they if they do actually um, fix their own system, then I think that'll alleviate a lot of the pressure on Canada.
0: Many have talked of late about immigration reform. What's involved in that? How is that done? And, and are, are we going to see something like that because of, uh, of what we're now experiencing?
2: So I, I can't speak to the U.S. Um, they have um, their, their system is significantly more flawed than what we have in Canada mm-hmm. um, in, in Canada. The, the the biggest problem right now is that we have major backlogs in the refugee uh, determination system. So, people who come here to make a claim are are actually staying here for two, three, four years before they have their claim heard in some instances, and that's a problem for both sides. It's a problem for them because they're in limbo, and it's a problem for the Canadian government because we have people here. Um, who, you know, we haven't determined whether or not their claim has any merit to it. So I, I think the the system is okay the way it is, but it needs more funding, and it needs to be um, run more efficiently so that um, we sort the individuals who are arriving in Canada um, more expeditiously. Uh,
0: can you please again explain the agreement between Canada and the United States, the third-party agreement, and does that need to be adjusted in any way in your opinion?
2: So very briefly, it's a complex agreement. Very briefly, the the premise is that um, if an asylum claimant arrives in either the U.S. or Canada first, then they should be making their claim in that country, and they shouldn't be allowed to go to either the U.S. or Canada instead to make their refugee claim. However, the big caveat is that it only applies to people at a um, physical. Border crossing, mm-hmm. um it doesn't apply to the people who are coming in irregularly through um, other channels. So once they're in Canada, then they're Canada's responsibility under the agreement. And so changing it would need um, agreement from the United States to actually take individuals back. Um, and it would also need you know some political considerations um whether or not in this climate we we want to be returning. Um, large numbers of people back into the hands of U.S. Um, enforcement. Officials.
0: What are the chances that we're going to see any changes or reforms?
2: It, it, that's really a political question. It comes down to statecraft. It comes down to what types of negotiations are happening behind the scenes. Um, I know there was some talks that th- this was this would be, you know, part of the ongoing NAFTA negotiations or aside, an aside to that. Um, there were reports that the Canadian government has pushed this issue with the U.S. officials. Um, understandably, they're not as concerned with it as we are. Um, so, you know, we'll see what happens. Uh, should the third-party agreement be changed? Um, I think it, I think it's it's fine the way it is. If if it was going to be changed, simply getting rid of it would, in my opinion, be the Best course of action only because it causes more confusion and problems than it solves as it currently um, stands. Because you have people coming in irregularly, and there can't be security checks done on them at the border itself. And the reason they're coming in irregularly is because at the border itself they would be turned away. But if they were allowed to just make their claim in a more orderly fashion at the border and then processed accordingly, it would be um, safer, more secure, and more efficient for everyone.
0: So do we change the third party agreement or do we just stop people from coming through the fence and make them go through the proper channels?
2: Um, You know, Canada has an international obligation to process asylum claimants. We're a member Mm -hmm. of the 1951 UN Refugee Convention, as is the U.S. So in keeping with with those values and those ideals, the, the, the best thing to do would be to process any asylum claimants as efficiently and expeditiously as possible. Those whose claims have merit are allowed to stay, who are actually at risk for their life are allowed to stay, and those who aren't, all those who aren't, should be um, removed. Um, and that that's more or less what is happening. We just need it to happen faster and better. Uh,
0: we've certainly heard about what's happening in the United States. Uh, the president will often point to uh, Canada as doing it right, and and, and they want the same sort of system similar to us. Is this an opportunity? Is it possible to even have one system that works for both countries and handles this situation um, uh, consistently?
2: Um, I believe what you're referring to is the fact that Canada has a fairly well – Thought-out skilled immigration program for Mm -hmm. not for refugees but for skilled immigrants who are coming to Canada. It's a points-based system, Um, and it works well for us because it distinguishes between immigrants who are able to integrate well and contribute to the economy, Um, and it's it's uh, helped us so far. And we're just we're increasing. the the level by which uh, we can categorize skilled immigrants coming to Canada through the new Express Entry system that's been implemented in the last few years the US doesn't have that the US has a green card lottery and that's part of the problem that mm. some officials in the US have pointed to you shouldn't be picking immigrants based on a lottery but rather based on their skills and abilities
0: Uh should we be picking the, them on skills and ability is that politically correct anymore
2: um, well it's what we do is what we've done for quite some time. We have a new system in place, a ranked point space system, but it 's essentially a very much along the lines of what we've had in the past um i don't think it's not politically correct i don't think there's anything wrong with it. It makes sense that given the volume of individuals who want to immigrate to Canada, that we would um, categorize them by how skilled they are, their language abilities, their education abilities, and how well they'll integrate and contribute to Canada once they arrive, that's absolutely fine. But that's a separate question from asylum claimants whose, mm. whose lives might be at risk, and that's a different category, and those are people that we should still be looking to protect if we can.
0: Uh, so are you expecting another
2: summer like last summer? Uh, no one knows, but, you know, given that nothing much has changed in the U.S., I mean, it, it, this was all, the, the change in administration was more recent last summer, so it could be that we'll see a bit of an ebb um, in in the number of claimants, but it's really hard to tell. Um, and again, that's why greater resources are, re- are required to be allocated to this issue.
0: Do we have any numbers yet of how many that have come through this way? How many have been processed? How many get to stay? How many... And, and what happens? Where do they... If they're asked to leave, where do they go then? Do they go back to the United
2: States? No. So they would be removed to their country of so they, origin. Yeah, they, yeah. The U.S. wouldn't take them back, um, and that's not where we would send them um, anyway. It's any, but any still, way. it's got to be better
0: to send them to, to the United States than perhaps someplace worse, as in their home country.
2: Um, it would be for them, perhaps, but that's not um, part of the deal. So yeah. when, they, when they make their claim, the risk is that we will adjudicate your claim. If we believe it has merit, then you get to stay. And if not, then you will be deported to your country of origin, and that's the... Um, risk they accept when they make their claim.
0: How many do we think are coming through the fence, but not even going through the legal process and just uh, living under the radar in Canada?
2: So that's a good question. And I think the percentages, we don't, I don't have statistics, and I don't know if IRCC even has statistics on that. Um, But I, you know, traditionally, it's very low. Most people who are coming here are coming to, in order to obtain A regularized status. A lot of them are coming from the U.S., where they were already without status. So if they just wanted to remain without status, they would have stayed there. What they want is to, you know, actually, you know, have the ability to work, to live legally, to to um, become a regular part of uh, Canadian society. So it wouldn't make sense for them not to um, make their claim and uh, attempt to regularize their status here.
0: So if you're the government of Canada, what do you do here?
2: allocate greater resources to processing these claims as efficiently and expeditiously as possible. That includes security and background checks. That uh, includes any safety concerns that they might have. Um, I know that's a primary consideration that the public has with so many entrants. Um, And then also uh, adjudicating their claims. Do they actually face a risk? And if yes, then we should protect them. And if not, then they should be removed back to their country of origin. And the faster we do that, the better it is for our resources and for them as well.
0: What was the purpose of and how effective was the Canadian government sending officials to the U.S. to talk to these communities? Do you think they will
2: do that again? And does it does it resonate? So the purpose, and I can't speak for the government, but I I believe the purpose was to notify them of the fact, as we were speaking about, that they their claim in Canada is not guaranteed. um, Despite you know some misconceptions, even even here in Canada, some misconceptions that the public may have, the refugee system in Canada is very strict. There are very narrow grounds upon which someone may be granted refugee protection there's a full hearing. Um, there's documentation required that they have to submit to prove their claim that they are actually at risk in their home country. And if they're denied, then they have to know that they will be deported back to their country of origin, not just back to the U.S. And I think that's what the Canadian officials were probably trying to warn them of.
0: Uh, do you, has, has the nation settled down about this? Is this going to be as big a story as it was last summer, do you think?
2: yeah i mean it's tough to tell that's uh, the media's your industry not mine um it, it's you know if if the numbers stay the same or lower then i don't know if it's going to be as um big of a continued story but if they do increase in the summer we might see more um uh articles about this um also the the opposition parties have made um or the opposition conservatives have made um, a lot of hay about these arrivals, because I think they think it's a good um, political sticking point. Um, and it really it isn't something that should be politicized because it's not the fault of this government or anyone in particular. As we said, the climate in the us. is what's contributed to um, a greater influx of refugee claimants. The only thing that the government should be doing is processing and dealing with them faster and better. Was this an issue, Eris, before the Trump years? Like I said, historically we've always had refugee claimants coming um, through either at the airport. Yeah, but I mean through
0: this way, through through holes. Yeah, we've always way. had
2: irregular border crossings; just mm-hmm. not as many. Right. So we've had hundreds of year, hundreds per year. Right. It's just not as many as we do now. Right. Eris DeGeegan has been with
0: us, refugee lawyer Green and Spiegel LLP. Eris, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated.
2: No problem. Thanks for having. me.
0: You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. According to a report released by the Ontario Trial Lawyers Association, Ontario drivers may have overpaid as much as $5 billion on auto insurance premiums. To talk more about all of this, Claire Wilkinson is with us, president of the Ontario Trial Lawyers Association, and with us now. Claire, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Happy to join you. Uh, I remember it wasn't that long ago, the NDP made a promise uh, that if they were elected, they were going to cut insurance rates by like 15%. And then the Liberals uh, stole that idea too from them. And, you know, apparently if elected, we were going to see a reduction in rates. Uh, the number 15% was, I believe, being thrown around. So how can we go from getting a savings of 15% uh, percent to being overpay uh, overpaying for our premiums by like $5 billion? Well, that's
3: an excellent question that deserves to be answered. One of the things that we've been calling for is greater transparency on the part of the insurance industry. Right now, they are not required to publicly disclose their profits. I don't know, you don't know, the government doesn't know. And so we know that they're making a lot of money and the report that was commissioned confirms that, but uh, we don't know how much and so that's a, a really big issue. And we first had Dr. Lazar uh do research back in 2015, and he concluded at that time that there was a lot of profit in the auto insurance industry in Ontario and that premiums could come down. And since that time, the government has enacted legislation which takes more rights away from injured people. So since those rights have been taken Mm. away, that means that the insurance companies are keeping even more money and making even greater profit. So it didn't surprise me at all that the profit numbers have been going up.
0: So is this about premiums and the amount they have gone up, or the amount profits have gone up and premiums haven't gone down?
3: It's both of those things, and it's also the fact that rights have been taken away from injured people and benefits have been taken away from injured people. And so when people get in a car crash and they come to my office and I tell them how much their rights have been eroded, they're absolutely shocked. So when the government wanted to reduce premiums, Instead of looking harder at the profits being earned by the insurance industry, instead, since 2010, there have been 17 different cuts that have taken place to reduce the benefits and rights of injured people. So people might have been happy that efforts were being made to reduce their premium. What they may not have realized... They
0: lost is coverage.
3: The people that are paying the price that are the people that get injured.
0: Yeah. Um, so, uh, but I thought the, red, the reduction in coverage was to pay for some sort of savings or uh, the way I think they positioned it was now you have choice. You can either buy this, this policy or a B policy or a C policy. Um, this was all supposed to uh, reduce rates, but that hasn't happened. How come?
3: Uh, well, I don't have the answer to that either, once again, because we're not given access to their profit numbers. But I'm glad you raised the optional benefits. That's what they're called. I do recommend people buy them. It's an additional premium that gives you a greater level of coverage. But the thing is, before 2010, you didn't have to pay those extra premiums. You, you just got the coverage as part of the standard auto policy. Then reductions were put in place, and consumers are given the option of buying back the coverage, so buying additional premiums. And I can tell you, very few people actually do that. Um so while the option is there for people to do it, I don't think brokers always explain it to people. They don't always understand it, and so they often and in the end, it's more it.
0: and in the end, it's more money. And who's got that, Claire?
3: Well, that's exactly right. And if I may, I mean, I can just give a couple of examples of the way in which benefits have been reduced. I think it's important that people know this stuff. Uh, one of the most critical ones is uh, the deductible. So in Ontario, if you're injured in a car crash most people have their claims subjected to a deductible. And it was uh, previously $30,000, but recently the government has changed the law to allow it to be indexed. So now it's $37,000 in change. So, for example, if you were injured, let's say you were T-boned or someone ran into the back of your car and you have a compensation claim that's worth $50,000, you only get 13000 of it. Mm. And we're not allowed to tell juries about this, but I'm telling you now so that people listening know. Okay?
0: Why are you allowed to tell juries about this?
3: Well, there's uh, rules that are in place because they're trying to save the insurance company money. Okay, So a jury might think they're giving someone $50,000 worth of coverage, but in fact, they're only getting thirteen, And that deductible increases every single year. And so my clients come into my office and say, well, who gets the $37,000? I said, the insurance company of the driver that hurt you. And they say, why? That's not fair. I say you're right, it's not fair, but that is what the law is right now. People need to know about it. And that's just one example. Um, Another one I'll share with you is that 75% of people who are injured in car crashes in Ontario have a maximum of $3,500 for medical benefits. So before the the coverages were changed, you used to have up to a million dollars. That has now been reduced to $3,500 for 75% of the people. How do you go from a $1
0: million to 3500
3: Well, that's another excellent question. That's what the government did. I think the insurance industry has had a lot of success in telling the government that they need to drastically reduce all these benefits and, and compensation for injured people so that the insurance company can make more money with the goal of bringing down premiums. But the premiums haven't come down significantly, and meanwhile, rights and benefits to injured people have been slashed. So that business of the thirty. 35- you know, we
0: would have been we would have been better, Claire, to leave the prices where they are and stay covered.
3: Well, I would have argued that, but I mean, the point with this report is that there's so much profit in the system. There's enough to bring down premiums and restore benefit.
0: Yeah. Uh, any idea how much the average person? who, um, again, average driver, average uh, driving record, and then all of a sudden the new policy comes in. They've lost coverage because of these adjustments. Now they want to go back to what they had the year before. How much extra is it costing the average uh, person who, who, who's purchasing insurance to keep up with what they had the year before?
3: All right, so you're talking about the purchase of the optional benefit. Yeah. Okay, so there's different benefits that are available and each one has a different premium that attaches to it. So I I couldn't I couldn't say to you for sure what it is, but this right. is what I can tell you. Um I think for me it cost me an extra $40 on my premium. So per,
0: per year. Yeah.
3: yeah. So it, it's it's it is not a dramatically increased number and I do recommend that people talk seriously with their brokers or insurance companies especially in the area area of medical and rehabilitation and attendant care coverage, because those are the ones when, you know, $3,500, if you've gone to physiotherapy for anything, you know, that doesn't last very
0: long. Yeah, yeah. So
3: that's an area where you can buy up your coverage back to higher levels. But we still have to remember that before 2010, you didn't have to pay those extra premiums and there still is all this profit in the system. So, you know, people need to look at the insurance company profits, and this is why we need transparency It's incredible to me that insurance companies in Ontario are not required to disclose their profits. Auto insurance is mandatory. If you drive a car, you have to buy auto insurance. Mm -hmm. And it's regulated by the government. And yet even the government doesn't know what the true profit is of the industry. And that's why we had to hire a professor of economics to try and figure it out. Because it's not readily available to the public.
0: It seems that every time government tries to interfere with this, they end up making it worse. Is that accurate?
3: I would agree with that. This system has been tinkered with, and every time it gets tinkered with, benefits and rights of injured people get reduced. And it's complex, and not everyone understands it until they've been injured, and then they come into my office, and it's my job to deliver the unhappy news to them about all the rights and things they can't claim for, because the government has taken that away to save money for the insurance industry. So we need to have this whole whole process, Completely overhauled. We need to start again. This system is dysfunctional and broken. So
0: why need- did Why did the government take that coverage or allow the insurance companies to take that coverage away? The idea was to bring down the price of premiums by giving us less.
3: Correct. But people, uh, and you know, you're asking excellent questions, Scott. Because I don't know. I try, you know. I try. I don't know why the government has allowed this to happen. It's outrageous, in my view. Um, like have, what's
0: in it for the government?
3: Well, the government cares about premiums because that's what the taxpayers care about. So as long as premiums are high and taxpayers are, are unhappy, the government wants to try and bring those premiums down. What I think the taxpayers don't appreciate or realize is all the measures that the government has put in place to bring those premiums down have been eroding the coverage for the Ontario's drivers.
0: And then they sell it like they're giving us more options. Well, thanks for that.
3: Well, you know, and that that is right. I mean, people are paying an additional premium to get the thing that they had before without paying the additional premium. But it's not just the optional benefits. It's I'll give you another example of one. This just happened in 2016. For Ontario's most seriously injured people, the ones that are catastrophically impaired, the people that are in wheelchairs and missing limbs and have devastating brain injuries, their basic coverage dropped from $2 million to $1 million. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we got that. cut in half mm-hmm. and um for the people that really need these services a million dollars may sound like a lot of money but if you have to renovate yeah. your house renovate yeah. your car buy prosthetics have 24-hour care because you have such a bad brain injury that you need supervision you burn through that money really really quickly
0: so i guess in the end uh, the government looks at this as uh there's more people making a slight savings on their premium that are getting critically injured and need the money
3: well, I don't know what the government's thinking is about this because, because yes, you know, the people that, uh, that are catastrophically impaired, they need the services. It's been cut in half. If someone happened to have bought the optional benefit to give them added, uh, funding for rehabilitation, that's great. But most people haven't purchased that optional benefit. So we're penalizing the most catastrophically injured people in this province, um, in an effort to bring down premiums. And the premiums still haven't come down to the extent that they need to, and now catastrophically injured people have half the coverage.
0: Can governments actually, well, what can they do here? What 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 power does government have here?
3: Government has a lot of power because they, if they want to, they can restore the benefits that they've taken away from injured people. They can get rid of that deductible. They can uh, get rid of that $3,500 cap for medical and rehabilitation benefits for certain claims. They can demand that the automobile insurance industry uh, disclose the extent of their profit in Ontario in a very transparent way so that we can all have more information and make wiser decisions about the best way to manage this system.
0: This doesn't sound like something this political party would do because it sounds more fiscal than it does social. So uh, again, it just seems odd to me that they'd pull the blanket over people's eyes this way and and try to make it seem as if we've got more options when what we really have is less. You know, what we have is less coverage unless we pay for it.
3: Yes, I mean it's very concerning um, that that these changes have taken place and that and that the public doesn't know the extent to which, I mean, some of these changes have taken place in cabinet quietly without a lot of media, without a lot of press attention. And then people just don't understand how much the benefits have been reduced. So what we have to do is look back to the key issue here, which is that there is a lot of profit out there. When we talk about 5 to $7 billion overcharging for the past five years, there's money there to reduce premiums and restore benefits.
0: Uh, I'm playing devil's advocate here, Claire. What about those that say, well, you're the president of the Ontario Trial Trial Lawyers Association, and why would we believe you as opposed to the insurance companies?
3: Well, our job is to represent uh, injured people. We give a voice to those who can't speak for themselves, and we stand up for those who can't stand up for themselves. And sometimes we are the only thing that stands between our injured clients and financial ruin. The insurance industry is a very well-financed foe. So when injured people are trying to fight for their rights and their benefits with an insurance company, uh, they have to get a personal injury lawyer to help them because it's too daunting and too complicated to try and do it on their own. You know, what should be happening, especially when we're talking about people putting forward claims for their own benefits with, you know, through their own insurance company, they shouldn't have to hire lawyers to fight these things. Valid claims should be approved, but that's not what's happening. Even if a treatment provider says that a says that an injured person needs a certain level of treatment, oftentimes the insurance company doesn't just accept that opinion and sends the person on to an assessment with their own doctor. These these independent they're called independent medical assessments often uh, come up with conclusions that predictably favor the insurance company and not the injured person. And in fact, there was a, a report done by David Marshall At the request of the government last year, and he, he looked at data from 2013 and said that year, $347 million was spent on insurer assessments. So when you talk about what kind of factors might be driving up costs in the system, well, unnecessary medical assessments of injured people is a huge factor because you already have treating doctors who have been working with their patients and are recommending certain treatment and Often those opinions just aren't accepted. The insurance companies send people off for second opinions, and the second opinion says, "No, you don't need the treatment," and all of that costs millions of dollars.
0: Uh, the finance minister Charles Sousa says that the province has taken steps to increase consumer protection and combat fraud, and ensure those that get injured in an accident get the care that they need. Is fraud an excuse in here?
3: Well, it sounds. I mean, I've heard about this fraud. I've never seen statistics to to you know back up. Uh, you know, any reliable data about what fraud is out there. So the word fraud gets bandied about, but we don't have very much information about the extent of that. And secondly, even if there is fraud in the system, according to this report, there is, like in 2016, there was $1.5 billion of profit. So even if fraud exists, there's giant profit being reached anyway in spite of whatever fraud might be there.
0: Why, I, I remember when this came out, and I remember looking at my policy and trying to make head and her tail of what the heck it was and what the heck was going on, um, and, and it got a bit of attention back then. Uh, why isn't this resonating with people?
3: I think what's happening is, for one thing, it's complex. So I mentioned a couple examples today, but you know, I told you there were 17 cuts. If you asked me to go through each of them, I would but a lot of it, unless you understand how the system works, would be hard to understand in first instance, so it's complex. Secondly, people don't believe they're going to be injured. Nobody wakes up one morning and thinks, oh, yeah, I'm likely to be in a car crash today. And so oftentimes people don't pay, pay particular attention, concern themselves with it, worry about it, think it's somebody else's problem because it hasn't happened to them. That's human nature. Once it happens to you or someone that you care about, that's when people get incensed about what's going on but by that point you know it's too late because the law is already in place that hurts injured people
0: do people just think well i'll sue the other person
3: (laughs) well people might think that i mean i think it would be reasonable for people to think that if somebody else causes them injury in a car crash that they will be compensated and taken care of and made whole that's a reasonable assumption Mm mm-hmm but that is not what happens because I've already explained to you about the deductible, for example, yeah. the $37,000 that people don't know about that does not get paid to them. It stays with the insurance company of the driver that hits you.
0: Wow. Where do you think this is going from here, Claire?
3: I think... Does, this, this, does is- this
0: become an election issue?
3: It should be an election issue. I mean, I would encourage everybody to talk to uh, the people that are running for election in your riding and ask them if they're prepared to insist upon transparency and ensure profits from auto insurers. And if they're prepared to reduce premiums and restore benefits to injured people, those are very important and legitimate questions that need to
0: be asked. Did this uh, last situation uh, with the, with the liberal government trying to get these rates reduced and allowing them to, uh, to give us less in return um, at the end of the day, this sounds like it played in the insurance company's favor.
3: Absolutely. I mean, I,
0: like it, I it didn't. I I don't see what we've got out of this, other than we, we have choice in that if we want to pay more, if we want what we had, we got to pay more.
3: That's exactly right. No consumers didn't get anything out of it, and injured people got a whole lot less. So these these amendments, um, I have no doubt, were recommended to the government by the Insurance Bureau of Canada, um, and the government has gone along with changes. The last ones being in two thousand and sixteen. When David Marshall did his review last year, one of the main points he raised was you cannot cut benefits any further. Hmm. So now the tool that the government has traditionally gone to to try to reduce premiums, which is cutting benefits further, that's now been taken away. Because Mr. Marshall said, you can't cut any further. You've taken enough already. So um, now we're left with these higher premiums. and, And what needs to be done is to take a good Hard look at the profits, and we need a transparent process to do that.
0: Claire Wilkinson has been with us, president of the Ontario Trial Lawyers Association. I don't know why I can't say that today. Claire, thank <laughs> you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated.
3: My pleasure. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to three on AM 900 CHML.